Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and YouTube machining. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 374. And on this episode, we have Brandon Sander of the YouTube channel Inherent Machining. Classically trained in mechanical engineering, Brandon inherited his grandfather's personal machine shop in the winter of 2021. He created a YouTube channel to document restoring these machines, continuing his grandfather's legacy, and getting back to his metalworking roots. Yeah, thank you so much. I've been really excited about this one. My pleasure. I've been, anticipation has been building. This is the first time I've ever done something like this, so... So, <clears throat> Inheritance Machining, your YouTube channel. Uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about that, and then, uh, if you wouldn't mind, tell us how it came about. Yeah, sure. So, um, I guess it's a, if you're not familiar with the channel, I you know I'm I'm a kind of in the maker space of things, and it's mostly focused on metalworking and machining. Um, and so I I'm going through the process of restoring some tools that I've machines that I've inherited from my grandfather, um, and also making tools that sort of fill the gaps of things I don't need, or just, you know, ideas that I have of things I want to make that are maybe a little more unique, um, haven't been done before, those sort of things. So, um, you know, I, I release a video every two weeks um, on a different topic, and, you know, it's usually a kind of a walkthrough, but it's more of a story of, you know, the process, things go wrong, um, you have your successes, things turn out better than you think they would and you know it's just whatever happens you know I, I try to be very try to include everything about the story when i go through a project so um but as far as how the channel started um so i've been wanting to get i i, I guess to start way back when i grew up with my grandparents um and i grew up around these machine tools that i have now um and so i've learned from my grandfather you know all the way through my teenage years you know you how to use these machines um, and then I went off to college and kind of to do engineering and, uh, you know, didn't have anything. I, I was stuck in a dorm room and, you know, doing my studies. Not that I would have had much time for it anyways, but, you know, I always had that yearning to go back and do that. Um, and so in college, I got into some activities uh, like Formula SAE. We can talk about that a bit um, where you kind of get a lot more hands on with machining and welding and fabrication. Um, and so. I just remembered how much I loved it. Um, and so basically left college and then right back into the boat of no, no tools to work with or anything. Um, and so uh, a couple of years ago now, uh, my grandfather had passed away, you know, four or five years ago. Um, and a couple of years ago now, I inherited his tools. Um, and I was kind of in a position in my day job where um, it was, it was very taxing. Um, I was an engineering supervisor and, uh, it was just, you know, I, I 10 hours, you know, driving, you know, eight hours at, at an hour driving to work, eight hours there, an hour driving back, you know, left no time for anything, especially with kids coming. Um, so we decided, you know, why, why not try to make a channel out of it? Cause you know, I'd always watched the YouTube grades, like, you know, this old Tony and click spring and those guys. Um, and my wife is actually doesn't have it anymore, but she had her own YouTube channel, farmhouse vernacular. 
So she knew all the ins and outs of how to make it happen. And so she was like, well, let's, let's try to make a YouTube channel out of it. And so, you know, we were like, all right, let's, let's go for it. Um, and so we decided that basically before moving any of the equipment. So that's actually what the first video on the channel is, is the process of moving the equipment and a little bit of the story I've just told you. Um, and, uh, sort of just took it from there, just started at the ground, you know, restoring some of the machines and actually getting into projects. And, uh, you know, now I'm, you know, just taking on more projects. I've got a list longer than, you know, you probably want me to read on here, but, <laughs> um, yeah, just that's, that's kind of how it came to be. So I'm curious, uh, if, if you, if you watch your videos or, uh, from the start till now, you have a very cohesive theme. Uh, it it's, seems very pre-planned and very um, thought out from the beginning. There's, I mean, it, it, the the videos that you that were just released a, a few days ago are similar to the ones released months ago. How much pre-planning did you do in order to set all this up? Not a whole lot, actually. Um, we kind of came up with a style that I would, I felt like sort of filled a gap. Um, cause you know, a lot of the channels have their own styles and they're very, you know, uh, distinguished. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I, I, I kind of wanted to just, you know, do something that was more how I would do it. Um, so other than that, not a whole lot. Um, we kind of did the first video and, uh, Paige is kind of like my, uh, she, she does the primary, you know, the very polished edit of the videos. And especially at the very beginning, she, she was doing all the editing and, um, she, uh, she kind of helped me with this, how to create a story out of, um, you know, the situation. Um, and you know, I, I kind of have kind of a photography background, so I've, you know, had a taste for different shots I wanted to do. And that's a big part of my style is the photography. It's very similar to, you know, my taste in photography. And, uh, um, so yeah, other than that, it was just like, you know, let's, let's just kind of tell a story with every video. Um, and it's, I don't always know what that story is going to be. I, I know what I want to make. Um, and I might do a little pre-planning with, you know, operations and, you know, the design I might want to do. Um, and then I kind of go through the process of the design of that thing, um, and the ma making of that thing. And then, you know, kind of at the end of every video or maybe partway through, I sort of start scripting out how things are going. Um, and kind of build a story around it like that. So um, I don't know, it kind of happened a little bit organically. I didn't know when we first started, that's exactly the style of video I wanted to make. And if you really pay a lot of attention from the first video to the videos now, it's kind of evolved a little bit um, as far as the style and, you know, how I'm telling the stories and so forth. So, Well, I, I would say that uh, I've noticed certainly um a, a tad bit more comedy in the more recent ones uh <laughs> not that it was lacking from from previous ones but yeah more recently there, there's a bit more but but it's also funny because there's three things that really flow with with all the videos that seem pre-planned but i guess that there may not have been and that's the box of shame uh chamfering whenever you can and then uh um, side project count which those are all fantastic yeah. a lot of a lot of those kind of things kind of came about organically from people in the comments, you know, kind of, you know, poking fun at things. And, and, um, sometimes my wife is just like, I, I think I 
one of the first videos that the box of shame came out on and I was just telling my, my wife about how I you know messed up a part for the third time or something. And I threw it in the box and she's like, Oh, and your box of shame. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we started including, including things like that. Um, you know, just kind of letting whatever, whatever funny thing happens, you know, that I try to include it like that. So <clears throat> without beating a dead horse, you know, it's like, here's my box of shame with every video. Cause it doesn't happen. every video. So. Um, so how do you pick your shots? Um, that's something that's always interesting that I find with like machining channels and stuff is um, at least for me, like I end up building something and being like, oh, I should have taken like eight photos during this process at these different points. And so at the very end. Right. So uh, it's um, like I mentioned before, I have a little bit of a, a taste as far as how I like to take photographs. Videography is a little bit different, but I still kind of frame like a photographer. Um, and so there's that, I try to make every shot sort of visually appealing, you know, putting things on thirds, leading lines, that sort of thing. Um, and when that's not really applicable, I'm basically try to focus on showing what I'm talking about. So as I'm going through the, the process, um, in the shop of actually making things and getting different shots, I'm thinking of like, is this something I want to talk more about, elaborate on, um, you know, get an angle you know, an attractive angle of what exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so that, you know, I have that when I go to do the edit, because, you know, if it's something mid process, like mid process on a part, I can't go back and get the footage without remaking the part. So I'm kind of, a, I'm kind of thinking of the story, not necessarily the story, but you know, the things I want to talk about as I'm filming. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's also gotten a lot easier. Um, Cause my first sort of, the first videos, you know, I think one of the first ones I did was, well, the first one I did was the call it blocks. And I think I probably had 500 video clips for that one video, just cause I didn't know. I was just like, I'm, I'm cutting it from here. No, I, and now I've, I'm doing a different cut. So I'll, I'll do it from here. And it's like, now I'm drilling and now I'm reaming and, and now I'm tapping. And, and it's, um, you, you kind of, I've kind of whittled that down to know, all right, I'm not going to elaborate on drilling a hole because I've shown that a hundred times, you know, let's focus on something a little new or, you know, interesting or whatever. So, so now I'm probably down to about 200 shots per video, but it's still, it could use some work because I probably don't use 30% of those. Yeah. Um, I, that's, that's one thing I always find interesting is, uh, like shooting B roll and that kind of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Especially if you're like the only person trying to record or shoot all the video is it's really hard to do. Yeah. Oh yeah. The there's a, there's B roll I shoot while I'm filming the, the process. And then there's some that like I need to come up with to sort of tie in and the, the beginning of the video or the end of the video, or maybe there's some, some explanation I need to do in the middle somewhere. And I don't know that until I've written the script and sort of developed the story around the project and the B roll going back into the shop and getting this sort of hand wavy B roll of like pointing at things. It's just like, it's probably one of the most, most draining, uh, draining parts of the filming process. So. And here's actually a question from our, uh, our YouTube chat real quick. It says, so now you have a camera gantry set up. How useful has it been versus the tripod? <laughs> it's so much nicer. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it, the tripod took time to set up 
Um, and so say I'd spent three hours cumulatively, you know, setting up a tripod per video, it's probably cut it down to, I don't know, an hour with the arm and sort of, you know, getting it where I want it. So it's, you know, two hours on a project I spend two weeks on. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it's more of a headache thing. You know, you're in the middle of something, you want to change angles quickly. Um, and you, you don't want to mess with legs and, you know, take three minutes to get a leg, get the legs where they're stable, make sure the machine is not going to run into them as it's, you know, taking a pass. Um, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's just been, it's just been eliminated basically from the camera gantry. Um, and, uh, it, it opens up a lot of the camera angles that I couldn't get before just because of, you know, I don't have access. So like a lot of the stuff on the lathe, um, that I film now, I couldn't before like straight down shots from above and, you know, some from the backside cause my lathe is against the wall. So I can't put a tripod behind my lathe so I can, I can get the tri the camera back there or I can get it, you know, right up on the spindle if I'm trying to shoot something, you know, kind of close up that I couldn't, there's no way to put a tripod in there. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a lifesaver <laughs> at least for my sanity. I, I want to guess that was also one of the side projects though on your counter. The, 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 uh, the gantry if you count that as a side project basically all my all my projects are side <laughs> <projects>. <laughs> that i think that one was a that one was a full full-blown project right yeah i would call that a full-blown project um because it's not strictly needed you know it's it's not strictly a tool to make something with you know it's sort of a quality of life upgrade and you know it's no different than you know making a desk lamp or something for your house it's kind of uh it, it's a little more complicated and fun to do but yeah yeah but the the swing arm on that has is a has quite a bit more travel than just a desk lamp oh yeah oh yeah yeah that 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 um that design got compared to uh a, a lot of these sort of norwegian style scandinavian style uh desk lamps with the articulating arm and stuff so um, but yeah, it's huge. <laughs> I made the arms way longer than I needed to. I've actually made a few modifications to, to that system since, um, one of them was, so I had sort of, it's like two arms, right. And I made the, the first one off of the, the post about a foot shorter. Um, because what I ran into was if I wasn't paying attention, if I went to swing the arm around with that sort of elbow up high, it would actually hit the ceiling or hit a light or even hit the gantry, the, the rails of the gantry itself. So I ended up shortening it just enough to clear all that. And I could put like a piece of tube around the circular perimeter tube around the top of it. So it, it, it can bump it and ride on, ride around on it. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't uh, crash into anything without me having to pay attention to it. So, um, yeah. So one of the things that is very unique about your channel, you know, you know, you had mentioned ClickSpring and this old Tony, and uh, it, it, you're all in that same space of metalworking and machining and fabrication. Uh, but one of the things that's really unique about your channel is that you like to do your drawings by hand, which <laughs> I, I I laugh every time I see it because it's just like wow, that's that's it, that's amazing. Um, so so it, let's just start with wh why do you like to do that? So there's a, I guess it's, it's, to me, it's no different than the reason I like to do manual machining as opposed to modeling something up and sending it to a CNC. Obviously it's not that straightforward. There's a lot more to it, but I like the manual aspect of manual machining. Um, and so the, the hand drafting is kind of an extension of that. 
you know, it's kind of a, a break away from the screens. Um, I, I grew, I grew up, you know, I kind of learned, I learned AutoCAD when I was 10 years old. Um, and I've taken some version of, you know, Inventor, SolidWorks, Pro-E type course all through college. And I've used, you know, Inventor and SolidWorks in my professional life for the last 10 years. So it's, it's nothing new to me. Um, it's nothing really impresses me about it <laughs> other than, you know, it is very efficient and a lot quicker to design in it. Um, but it's, it's a lot of time at the screen. Um, and combining that with, you know, editing videos and writing scripts, um, you know, it's, I just kind of prefer to take a break away from that and, you know, design by hand, um, at least while it's kind of feasible to do, you know, some of the, I've got some projects in mind that, I'm not sure if I'm going to draw them by hand or not, just because they're so big, and so complicated. <laughs> a lot of moving parts that I don't want to. I don't want to mess up the interferences on. So, well, and I guess you don't really have many screens in the shop, or at least you don't show them on on camera. And no screens, other than if my I have if I have my laptop or my phone. But yeah, no screens. Very cool. And and your drafting table was that also your grandfather's? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't fully know the whole story behind it because um, it is my grandfather's, but I know that uh, one of my uncles used it through his sort of um, drafting school days um, in the eighties. So I don't, um, I, I kind of have a mixture of, I think some of my uncle's tools and some of my grandfather's tools. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of the things that came with all the rest of the equipment. So did you, um, get to like so learning drafting um did you take that in school at all or yeah that's that's actually where i learned all that i didn't learn any of that from my grandfather because i don't think he, he wasn't really a, a trained draftsman or anything um uh but yeah i, I took four years of uh, drafting in high school um and it was you know all you know dr drawing out your own title block every time and you know oh, yeah. a lot of it was just you know take this take this isometric view of this part and you know, draw it in, in, uh, in, you know, a multi-view drawing of it. Um, and you know, the more advanced you got down the years, it was, they were more cr critical about, you know, the standards and, you know, line types, hatch styles, um, especially more critical on the text, um, on the handwriting of the text and all that. So, um, I won't say that I'm as good as I used to be, <laughs> uh, cause <laughs> I, I, I Anybody who's, who's done hand drafting and looks at my drawings will probably say there's a lot that could be improved on. But you know, I, I kind of do it for the more for the mental thing than to say that I made I spent 14 hours on a single sheet to make it absolutely perfect. Because mm -hmm. I'm gonna it's sitting in my shop. I'm gonna get it dirty within 10 minutes, and <clears throat> once I start machining, so. I I think it's a really good skill to have, anyways. Um, even if you do a lot of. Uh, CAD work on a computer because I, I learned in high school too um, and my mother was a interior designer and so I got to use her drafting table and uh, my I never got to the point where like I was graded on my penmanship on my drafting um, so uh, but uh, yeah it's, it's one of those things where like uh, just the aspect of drawing is uh, kind of soothing might be a good word for it mm -hmm. yeah for sure yeah I, I completely agree about it you know kind of making you a little bit of a better designer um because you have to 
when you're drawing by hand, you have to be more methodical about how you're drawing things and the views you select and, you know, what details you want to show more detail on and the scale of things. You have to figure all that out before you start drawing or you're going to do a lot of erasing or starting over. Exactly. You can't, you can't take the model and then spin it. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, that was the, f the first time I used a, a parametric software like Inventor where I, I modeled it in 3D and it was just like, just spit out three views of like, oh my God, yeah. this is so cool. <laughs> it but, is kind uh, of funny though, because the pizzazz of doing that, if if you do it at day in and day out, then it loses its luster. Exactly. And, and then you look back at like hand drawing and you're like, whoa, whoa, yeah. that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to see some of the old stuff they used to draw, is like blows my mind. Yeah, uh, Parker and I, we, we experienced, we talked about this a, a lot, but we experienced the uh, the issue of um, old hand-drawn data sheets for electronic components that have been photocopied 10 trillion times. Oh, and they're, yeah. and they're still like the, the what the, the customer facing data sheet that they <laughs> supply you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny too, because b before the, before the podcast, um, I was talking to my wife and she's like, Oh, who, who's coming on? I was like, Hey, it's this guy. He, he hand draws all of his own stuff. And he, he even draws his own logos and title blocks. And I could just see her eyes, just glossing over like has no idea the magnitude of the effort that that takes yeah. <laughs> so talking about the uh the projects you do you know you, you kind of have you you have an interesting mix of of projects that you've presented so there's a lot of useful tools that are upgrades to machines that you've already made uh, there's also um, a handful of tools that expand what your your machines do. Um, why don't you go ahead and talk about just some of the stuff that you've that you've made? Yeah, so basically everything I'll show you has a video on it. Um, so one of the first things I made was this tap wrench. Um, so this is basically a mimic of a very popular Starrett style tap wrench. Um, I was like, so I recognize that. I have uh, one of those on my benches over there. <laughs> yeah. I, I, ironically, ironically, of all the things my grandfather had, I didn't have a single tap wrench. I don't know how. <laughs> I mean, I grew up with him, so I, I know we always use like crescent wrenches for our taps, and it, it worked fine, or we power tapped. Um, but yeah, so, um, you know, this is, you know, the plunger in here moves in and out with this hand wheel or with this knob, and you hold your tap there. Um, but I was coming up with the design of I wanted to make. I just couldn't think of anything more beautiful than this this style tap wrench. So that's exactly what I made, um, and it ended up being probably a little bit more complicated than something I should have made for basically my second project ever. Um, but because uh, there's a lot of tricky things, like if you watch the video on this, there's a lot of um, kind of weird setups that probably that they worked, but I don't know that you would want to do them in a in a pr professional shop or anything like that. Um, so, you know, turning between centers and, um, kind of sketchy stuff on the mill, but yeah, that was <laughs> one of my first projects. <laughs> um, and I use that probably every project now that, so that was like a fundamental tool that I needed. And now I basically use it on every project going forward. Um, yeah, and, and actually let me, let me, let me pause right there. One of the things that Parker and I, uh, we've talked about a handful of times and I love it cause you're putting this into practice. There's so many things where you have a project in mind and you're like, but I need this tool to make this other tool to oh, calibrate yeah. this machine in order to do that project I actually want to do. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You talk, yeah. talk about the video planning. Like I've kind of loosely planned out, 
you know, my next 10 videos. And a lot of them are like, well, I can't do that until I make this. And so I just kind of step my way back to, you know, in the, in the lineup of tools that I need to make before I can make the thing I want to make. So, yeah, it's, um, what I've started doing is, you know, you make a list of like what your project needs and ends up becoming a dependency tree. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some other things, uh, this is a more recent one is this is a slitting saw arbor. Uh, so it's just, uh, it's got an R eight taper here that fits right into my mill. Um, and it's got a, uh, I probably should have brought a wrench in so you can see the cool part, but inside of here, um, there's like a, a multi-diameter plunger um, so that if you have a hole saw that's got a half inch or five-eighths or three-quarter or one inch, it, they'll all fit on here. Um, and I made this because the one I bought on, uh, I can't even remember, it was like eBay or something. It was like a $50 cheapo thing. It it was just a piece of junk. Um, it's it basically ran it so much out of center or so much off true that I, when I went to try and fix it, there was barely any material left and it kind of just fell apart. Um, and so <laughs> I, I had to, you know, make do with it, um, until I could, uh, you know, come around to make my own. Um, but this one works great, but if you haven't seen the video of something, you'll, you'll find out in that video and the following video is I kind of screwed up. Um, it, it got snagged in my mill. Um, I think might've, what might've happened is that, um, my quill impact wasn't, I didn't have enough air pressure on my quill impact, so it didn't pull it in tight enough. And the blade actually snagged when I was doing a test cut and it just, there's a pin inside an R8 taper and that's what it just completely gouged its way through the side of this. Um, and then all the other marks you see are me trying to remove it from my mill. <laughs> so <laughs> it almost permanently became part of your mill. Oh yeah, that exactly. I'm just glad it didn't weld or something weld its way in there or something. But yeah, so I've had a lot of suggestions on how to fix that. Another thing I could do is remove the pin from the mill. Apparently that's a pretty common thing to just remove that pin from the R8 taper. Um, but you kind of want to be careful with that if you don't have consistent uh, uh, draw bar torque, like if you have variable air pressure on your quill impact or something. So. That, that that pin must be super hard to be able to dig through that that shaft. Yeah, like yeah. That. This is this is forty one forty. It's not hardened or anything, but I was I was pretty surprised that it just ground its way through there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that the uh, the mill didn't sustain damage from that. Yeah, uh, it it stalled it. It stalled the motor completely. Um, oh, jeez. <laughs> and it was it was a four inch it was a four inch cutter I was using. So there's a lot of a lot of moment on that on that spindle. But yeah, yeah it stalled can... it, and I turned it off immediately and surprisingly from what i can feel inside the inside the spindle there's no damage at all so wow <clears throat> you can burn up a motor pretty quick oh, yeah. it like that oh yeah well it, something that happened in a recent video um i was making a, a big tooling play with you know like 800 holes in it or whatever and uh i was you know power tapping i was like i was throwing the throwing the switch to run it down and then i just switch it back to feed it back out but i'm i'm running my uh um my motor on a, a phase, a single phase or a phase converter, phase combat, phase um, but it's a um, static phase phase converter. So it's it's only giving it. It's basically a starting capacitor, right? So it's giving it three phase for like five seconds enough to get the motor going. But um, switching that back and forth, I basically overloaded that that thirty year old phase and blew the capacitor, <laughs> blew it up, and that was part of the whole that was the whole whole thing in the video. Um, 
actually repaired it in the video and got a new capacitor and fixed it. But um, yeah, that kind of stuff always makes it in the video. <laughs> it's it's fun. Yeah, it's fun to see when things go wrong. Um, it, it, sometimes they're sometimes they they're self inflicted, and it's like oh uh, yeah, maybe I should have seen that. And sometimes it just goes wrong, and you right. don't even know why. Right. Uh, and then it hits the box of shame. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I didn't originally start off showing all that. Um, it's a sort of, it's been well received, but I started off showing it cause I was like, that's, I, that's funny. I think that's funny that I did that or that that happened or whatever. So I started including it. And a lot of people were like, that's exactly what happens to me every time I go in the shop is I do something stupid or, and people just like think that it's great that I show that and, you know, it makes them feel better that they see me doing it and sharing it with, you know, so many people on the internet and it's, you know, it's, everybody does it. It's part of the process. It's part of the fun. It's, the, it's part of the learning. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause every, every, every mistake you make, it's, you know, there's a lesson to be learned. Um, a lot of, a lot of people with the box of shame, they don't like that. I call it that, you know, I'm poking fun at myself, but it's like, it's more of a box of learning. I'm like, you're right, but it's funnier to call it a box of shame. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember being younger, uh, my father and I, every Sunday at lunch, we would watch um, This Old House and, um, gosh, what was it, New Yankee Workshop with uh, Norm, I think was his name. And and those were shows where they never showed mistakes. Everything was flawless, top to bottom. And the entire time my dad and I are yelling at it, it's like, there's no way he got that perfect the first time <laughs> every time. There's no way. There's, and you know, you know why? It's because we've built anything ever. Like that's why yeah. we know he didn't get it right every single exactly. time. <laughs> so funny you mentioned the old shows. I wish I could remember the name of this. Um, it was on PBS, I think, and there was this guy. He wore like a little Irish hat, um, and he was kind of did these woodworking things. My grandparents would always point out to me when we were watching it that like they'd cut between scenes, and every time he'd come back to see him using his hands, he had another bandaid on his finger. And <laughs> 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 hey the piece isn't damaged he's damaged that's right yeah <clears throat> so uh what, what are some other projects that are you've made yeah so one of my early ones uh was a surface gauge so this is oh that's beautiful a, yeah this is kind of a tool you use for sort of precision measuring um like if you have a um, surface plate a granite surface plate those are usually flat within you know a, a ten a couple ten thousandths of an inch well couple hundred thousands of an inch rather um so you can measure the heights of things um you can measure squareness um you know a whole lot of things there's a lot of uses for this tool um and this was probably one of my most challenging uh projects uh, especially starting off because i probably spent about 80 hours in the shop machining this and i actually had to sort of cave in and break it into two videos because it was just too much to do in a, on a two-week cycle so um yeah, i kind of did this base and this sort of arm piece here and then i made everything else in the second video but um yeah it's got a lot of features on it so there's a fine adjust screw here that kind of pivots this whole arm um there's a a bump rail here this is a curved bump rail so you can use it for uh squareness comparison um you can also do that with the ball end of this uh, rod here that's kind of a lesser known thing um this is a kind of a common feature on surface gauges that a lot of people don't know what it's used for and that's one of the uses um 
if he's not from, well, maybe I could, should show you an example of what I mean by squareness comparison. So set this up here. Live calibration. Oh, it's not going to be calibrated. I'll guarantee that. But. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine you've got this set up like this and you've got a square reference here. You can line this up or you can rest this against the surface and bring your indicator in and kind of sweep it like that. And you'll see a high point on your indicator. And if you reference a square, a known square surface like that, you can use that and then go check squareness on something else. You can also just do a squareness comparison, like if you know a, if you know you have a, you know a block that's perfectly parallel on both sides because you surface ground it that way. Um, you can just kind of do a reading on both sides and see which way it's leaning without actually having to know a true square reference. So um, that was actually why I made this is because I need a square needed a way to use a I needed a squareness squareness comparator, so I made this. Um, to make my next tool, which I didn't bring in here because it weighs like 40 pounds, but it was a sign plate, big magnetic sign plate that I broke up into another set of two videos. Um, and that's a, that's a tool for um, basically setting things at a very precise angle. And it's called a sign plate because you use the trig function sign to figure out how much you know gauge block material you put underneath this plate to set it at the angle you want. So, Yeah, if you, if you need 33.2956 degrees... Mm -hmm. You can get that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, that's the key about it is you use, you know, your, your gauge block set that's accurate to, you know, a hundred thousandth of an inch. Um, and you figure out exactly what stack you need and then you can get it down, get your angle set to within, you know, you know, four decimal places or whatever. <clears throat> By the way, for anyone who's listening, if you want to, uh, actually see these things, well, first of all, go watch uh, Brandon's channel or go to uh, the Macrofab YouTube um, channel and go to the live streams and you can see all the show and tell that Brandon's doing. So uh, what is your uh, most difficult project that you've done so far? That's, that's, that's a tricky question because things are challenging for different reasons. Um, for instance, this looks like a very simple thing. Um, it's a tap follower, so you can hold it in your mill or lathe, and this plunger is spring-loaded. So you can put it behind the tap, load it up, you know, bring your quill in, and then you can feed your tap with your tap wrench. Um, the key behind this is that this plunger stays um, in line, right, that it runs true with the center axis of all these features on the outside. And as you'll see in my video, I had a lot of trouble actually achieving that. Um, you know, I learned about Deep, deep hole drilling and how drills kind of tend to wander. And it, even though you want to, even though you might bring a reamer in after that, it's going to follow the path that that drill made. So you you won't end up with a square or a uh, you know an aligned axis. And uh, I've actually made this is the fourth iteration of this. I was about to <laughs> ask how many how many did yeah. you make? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and and there were some other. The reason there are four mistakes is four iterations because each time I went through it, I made another mistake and I actually got it to a fully assembled thing like this when I realized, Oh, I, my deep hole drilling didn't work out. So each one was a new mistake that I, you know, learned along the way. So, um, that was challenging for that reason, just cause it was like a punch in the gut every time I kept messing it up and I'm trying to you know, hit a deadline or whatever. Um, but some of the more, you know, just technically challenging was, 
Um, this is actually two things. So this is just a, a, a tool holder for the lathe. And I made six of these in a video. Um, that's pretty straightforward. But this is actually a, a knurling tool. Um, this is uh, this is a design that comes from a kit by Hemingway Kits. I'm not affiliated with them or anything. That's just where this kit came from. And it was actually sent to me by a patron um, who just likes supporting, you know, YouTube machinists. So he sent me this kit. Um, and so I made this. And there's like there's a lot more parts than it looks like here. Cause there's like pins and, and stuff kind of hidden inside here and there's, everything's got to fit nicely. Um, and the material that's supplied with the kit is basically right at dimension of, you know, a lot of the parts. So if you want to like a nice finish, you kind of have to compensate. It's like, all right, so this top plate is, you know, excuse me, 10,000 thinner than the original, um, design calls for, but then you have to account for that through everything else. So, the drawings are basically mental, mentally annotated in my head of keeping track of, you know, the changes I've made along the way. And so that was challenging and just having so many parts was challenging. So but. was that kit supplied with the intent of it just being assembled? That's why it was at final dimension or I no, because it's, it was just raw stock. So it's like, Oh, <laughs> this plate was just a, a square piece of plate um, that you had to cut down and do the rounds and do the drills and all that. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I, I they could have designed it. I guess like I guess it leaves it open for a beginner versus someone who wants to make a very nice looking thing, where you, it will work if you just kind of use the the mill finish on all the material, um, and you just want a tool that will work. Because you can't really. I don't. As far as I know, you cannot buy this style tool. There's some other scissor style things or knurling tools, but not not this exact style. So if you just wanted to make it quickly so that you have an Erling tool, it would work. Uh, but if you wanted to like sort of make it look pretty, it's, you, you got to do a little more, you know, math to figure it out. So, <laughs> you know, actually um, that, that leads into the next question I had. Um, so, so that particular tool isn't off the shelf, but the previous one, the, the tap follower, I mean, you can go to Amazon and, and buy a $5 <laughs> tap follower. And that's that's I, I totally understand the desire to make it yourself. But what I'm wondering is, do you, uh, do you kind of have you run into the situation where you limit yourself by saying, oh, I, I need to buy a tap follower, but I could just make it instead. Oh, yeah. And that could be a video. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of tools that I don't have that I need to make. Um, and one of the aspects I try to bring to every one of my projects is to do it a little bit differently than something I can buy um, or something that I've seen made before. Um, and this is a this is an example of that. Um, I could have bought it for I don't know fifty bucks or whatever, but what I wanted was something that I can mount in my mill, in my lathe, in multiple configurations. So this this will mount in a collet in the in the mill. Um, I can put it in a drill chuck in the mill or the lathe. This is a Morse taper that I can mount in my mill or my lathe um, with adapters. So it just gives me a lot of flexibility um, that otherwise I wouldn't have because sometimes. Like say you're on the, especially on the mill, maybe you've got a tall setup and you don't have a lot of room to fit your tap and tap wrench in there. Um, this will, this will get it you way up in, into your, your, your uh, spindle. So you have more room to work. Um, you know, things like that. It's, I just wanted it to be as flexible as possible. And so it's worked out pretty well so far. Um, Brand, Brandon was showing his tap follower for when it's listening on the podcast. 
Oh yeah, I forgot this is a podcast, right? <laughs> I, I see the video. I'm like, yeah, we're doing a video. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so your favorite project and your least favorite project. Favorite project. Um, probably one of my favorite projects was the surface gauge, just because. I was so proud of it when I made it because it was the most complicated thing I'd ever made. Um, and I just love the way it turned out. There was quite a bit of design work behind it to make sure everything kind of fit together. Um, you know, so I was proud of it from a you know, design and a making standpoint. It just turned out as exactly how I wanted it. Um, least favorite. I got to think about that one. Um, cause I don't really dislike all, all your children are your favorite, right? Right. Right. <laughs> least favorite. <laughs> Least favorite would probably go back to the tap follower just because it's, <laughs> it's just the, the, the difficulty I had with it and, and it and it being something I could have bought for, you know, you know, 50 bucks or something. It's just that's it's just it kicked my butt. So. <laughs> so, so this is a question from chat is uh, was there any projects for YouTube that you just scrapped midway through and just end up not making the video? No. No, I basically committed to whatever um, I was doing, whether it turned out, I basically have that commitment to every video I go into is however it turns out, it turns out. Um, so the, a lot of the tools I make, I, I've been pretty successful so far with the, you know, a few blunders here and there. Um, but every tool I've made, I've I used with the exception of a few things, um, just because I haven't had setups that I needed them for. For instance, my... Um, the big aluminum fixture plate that I made, I've yet to use it. It just seemed like something I'm like, oh yeah, I could totally use that. Um, I made a, I made like a little low profile wallet um, out of brass for my brother that a fixture plate like that would have been perfect for. And then I never really needed needed it. So I guess I have it if I uh, if I ever get around to needing it. But um, yeah, I've never I've never bailed on a project. Um, usually I'll. I think I have it in my mind that I'm going to complete the project regardless. And if it, if it fails, that's part of the story. So, <laughs> so from the beginning, it looked like you were, uh, kind of committing yourself to the metals, steel, brass, aluminum. However, your last video, you went a little bit more organic, uh, with your material and, um, did a wooden clock. Uh, so is that something is woodworking, something you might incorporate more in the future? Yeah, probably. Um, in the meantime, between when I sort of went into the big world, you know, by myself and, you know, inheriting the shop, I've acquired a lot of woodworking tools, nothing on the scale of like wood turning lathes or anything, but I've done a lot of home renovations. So I've got table saws, miter saws, um, well, table saw, miter saw. Um, well, and you built the router, shop, right? Built the shop, built a lot of stuff in the house, cabinets and stuff. So I've got, you know, a fair amount of background in that. Um, but as far as, you know, woodworking in the shop, yeah, that I'm not ruling that out. My primary interest is in metalworking um, just cause I, there's something more satisfying to that about that to me for some reason. Um, but the, the clock was kind of a, a little bit of a dipping my toes content wise into some woodworking um, just because, uh, you know, that was a project that just meant so much to me. I'd basically been wanting to, you know, check that off the list since I've got the machine shop. Um, cause I've had that clock longer than the clock than the shop. Um, so it was just kind of a, 
I don't know. It was a more of a personal project for me than, uh, than anything. So. Sure. And that, and that, uh, that video released, I don't know, a week ago, handful of days ago. Um, so how's, how's the clock running, running? It's not. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So it, I kind of alluded to this in the video that, um, wood isn't a good thing to use on a clock, especially when you have changes in humidity. Um, and just because things expand and contract, and so all the movements inside of a clock are sort of finely adjusted to work just right. Um, and so once things kind of change, all your adjustments go to hell. So um, I, I just haven't spent a lot of time getting back into that because we're kind of going through this temperature swing and humidity swing through the spring here. Um, another factor of this is uh, we don't have air conditioning um, in our house. So uh, it's, you know, the we leave the op windows open during the summer um, and you know, whatever the humidity and temperature is outside, it just, it's what it is inside. So. <clears throat> Very cool. It's another reason to stick to metal. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've been challenged by a lot of people to re replicate the clock out of metal. And I'm, I definitely have a clock in my future. Um, I don't know if I'm going to copy that one exactly but there's definitely a clock in my future. So I, I it seems daunting to um think of of clock mach machinery without CNCing uh doing it by hand. Uh, it, it, daunting in terms of not necessarily the actions taken to do it, but just the time <laughs> needed to because it just seems like something that would take forever to make. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's um that's probably the type of project. It's not going to be a one video project just because there's going to be so much involved, but um, you know, there's, there's neat ways. Like I can see breaking it down and doing a video on, you know, cutting gears or cutting a, an escape wheel or, you know, making a frame. You know, I kind of like to approach, I, I kind of like to challenge myself on some of the machining operations of, you know, projects that I've even done myself already um, to, you know, do them in a manual way that you probably wouldn't think is possible um, or, you know, practical at least like the, the, the wallet that I made, there's kind of a engraved geometric design on it. That's pretty intricate. And I did that all by hand with a rotary table and sort of, I did all the math to figure out the start and stop locations of all the lines. And um, I've got the drawing. I could show you the drawing, but it's just like littered with dimensions um, and, so I, I kind of like to challenge myself to like, yeah, you see this? I, I made that manually, not, you know, with a CNC. It took me two hours. It would have taken a CNC three minutes, but. <clears throat> yeah. Well, at, at least it's not like click spring where he's like, I have a sharpened, you know, chicken bone and a chunk of leather and I'm going to make you know, 10 <laughs> gears at it with this. So that's right. Yeah. Everything, everything he does seems like it would be 500 hours for each individual thing. Oh yeah, and I'm sure it, it it does take that much time for some of the things, but that's that's part of the that's part of the appeal. It's a it's a machining is a hobby that kind of has no limits. Um, you can make what it, that's what I like about it is you can basically make anything if you have the ability to form and cut metal um, precisely, especially. Um, well, and if you inherit a machine shop, yeah, yeah, that helps. A bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on that, like the moment I figured out how to weld, 
like just radically changed how you approach projects. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I had the same, same thing when I learned machining and same thing when I've, I've done a little welding, you know, in, in collegiate projects and stuff. And it's like, Oh, this is okay. I can do this. It just opens up a door to, you know, everything else mm-hmm. you can do. <clears throat> yeah. I'm actually surprised you haven't done any welding for any of your projects here because i mean it seems like so many things that potentially could make a setup easier or mm-hmm. even a fix or something like a like a pin gouging through the center of a right right a taper yeah there's i actually have a mig welder um it's an old one that's a little beat up um and i've used it for some you know personal repairs to lawnmowers and stuff and um it's i don't know it's 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 maybe it's one of those things that i just I never think of while I'm designing. It's like, oh, I could weld these parts together and then machine them, and I would save myself a lot of material. It's like I kind of, I don't know, I just glance over that kind of stuff. <laughs> but, you know, there's some, I've got some projects that is more fabrication type things um, in the works that um, th- there's definitely going to be some welding. So you can see my <laughs> my, my my terrible MIG welding skills. Um, <clears throat> so, um what what left do you would you say uh you have in order to call your shop done and i'm using air quotes here yeah yeah i saw that question that's um (laughs) there is no done that's kind of what i was saying before and that's what i like about it is you know the sky's the limit with what you can make um so i don't see and i hope i never see an end to you know projects i can do and calling the shop complete um because i i you know, I've got some projects I'd like to do that aren't exactly tools, you know, maybe, you know, some automotive type things. Um, and, you know, I'm going to need a lot of specialized tools to do those sort of things. Um, but I kind of just, I kind of like tool making. And that's what a lot of my videos are, um, is new, new takes or unique takes on, uh, you know, common tools or maybe a tool that doesn't exist. Um, you know, I, I I kind of like being a little bit of an inventor in that field. Um, it's kind of a <laughs> self, a, a, a circle of, you know, never leaving the shop, but that's kind of what a hobby is. As long as you're kind of, as long as you're sort of getting fulfillment and enjoyment out of it, it doesn't matter that you're, you know, you know, making all these things for outside the shop. That's at least that's what I think. So. <clears throat> So how do you, how do you go about planning your projects then? Yeah. So, it, you know, I got to start with an idea. Um, and I've mentioned before that I've kind of listed out my next 10 projects or so, but I don't necessarily follow that list because the time might come. That's like, all right, I finished this project. I need to do this one next, but I don't really feel motive, like not motivated, but, um, I don't really feel inspired, but yeah, inspired by that project in particular. And so I'll, I'll kind of sometimes just jump to something I really want to do. Like the clock was an example of that. Um, I, I just, I, I want to do this. So I'm going to do this project. Um, but yeah, as far as, you know, a project by itself, I'll start off with um, just a loose idea and kind of over, I'm sort of, sort of forming these uh, design ideas over time leading up to the start of that project, um, you know, weeks and months in advance just sketching out, you know, sort of different features and what do I want to include? How can I do it differently? And, uh, 
I might do a little preliminary drafting um, that I don't show sometimes where I'm just sort of figuring out the, uh, the fit of things and the shape and the style and is this going to look stupid or is it going to look nice, um, those sort of things. Um, and then uh, it, I also have to think about while I'm doing it, can I actually make that part um, the way I've designed it? So that's another key thing. So um, on the videos where I'm actually making something and I show the design, um, that's part of why it looks like I'm just sort of, you know, throwing together this design. I've kind of done an off-camera little bit of, you know, rough sketching of dimensions and sizes of things so that I know, all right, when I draw this part, I want it to be this size and have these holes in these locations. Um, so once I get the drawing done, um, I'm also thinking about the machining process as I'm going through the drawing. And so I'll, I'll usually write out, um, you know, my, my list of operations for every part. Um, and that helps me with sort of keeping the, the video, um, you know, manageable because I could talk in detail about every single operation that I'm doing, but I'm like, all right, I'm drilling, I'm tapping, I'm facing, I'm doing all these things, but what's, where's something I haven't talked about in here. And I'll sort of highlight those in my list and say, all right, I want to get some extra shots on this. Um, you know, I did some trepanning in a recent video. So I, you know, I kind of stopped and did a whole thing there and there's a side project of making a trepanning tool. Um, and, uh, it's, I kind of break it down like that so that I kind of know what I'm going to do. Um, and then, you know, once that's all figured out, I just dive in and start doing it. Um, and anything that kind of happens incidentally along the way, I break something, I, I screw something up, I, you know, all that sort of stuff. I just, you know, I got it all on camera. So <laughs> I just I include it in the, in the, the final cut. And so I finish the project and then I'll, uh, I'll uh, start scripting and basically I'll come up with an introduction that's usually related to something that happens in the video or, or, you know, some overarching story theme to the video. And uh, then I'll, you know, start going through my process of, you know, what I need, what are my requirements, what am I making? Um, and then I'll do a design. I'll kind of go through the features I'm including, the parts I'm including, and then, you know, start jump right into machining and, and, you know, start writing about that. And there's, I find something funny in there along the way or something silly happens. I'll, you know, write about that and then, um, get to the end and, you know, get any B roll I might need to kind of tie up loose ends and then, you know, do the edit. <clears throat> so side projects during the project, um, how often does that, th that does that influence your decision on what project to make or make you not want to do a project <laughs> <laughs> it's never made me not want to do a project um and there are probably a lot more side projects that i don't show um because it's like it, i it i kind of we kind of came up with this term side projects so what's the what are the bounds for that right it's like oh i, I chipped an insert like that happens every time I make something basically. So it's like, yeah, am I going to show the side project of flipping the insert over? Um, or, you know, this, I'm using this tool, but I haven't used it ever. So it needs to be de-rusted and, or cleaned up at least. And so I, I kind of, I kind of weigh it. Sometimes I'll film things like that. I'm like, there's no room in the video for this. The video is already 25 minutes long. I don't need 
I don't need this little, this extra little nugget in here. So it's, um, sometimes I film more side projects, um, just in case, you know, they, they, there's a spot for them there. And, um, but yeah, I've never held back on a project or, or did a project just for side pro just because of the side projects or anything like that. <clears throat> okay. So how about, uh, the future of the channel? I mean, it's still a, f a fairly new channel, mm -hmm. but, uh, what are plans going forward? Yeah. Or, so, or plans that you're willing to share, I should say. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to keep making, um, I'm, you know, I'm still learning so much. Um, kind of doing it the hard way. Cause I don't, I, I kind of learned by it from my own mistakes <laughs> rather than others. <laughs> uh, but I share them on the internet. So hopefully they're helpful for other people. Um, but yeah, I, I just want to keep, you know, I've got a long list that could probably sustain me for a couple of years of just projects I want to make and tools I want to make things I want to branch out into. Um, so I just want to kind of keep my inspiration going on these things, um, on these tools and these projects um, and kind of other things along the way. Um, that come up, you know, the, the thing we didn't talk about in the beginning is this is, this is a, a business for me. Um, and it's, it's a business I'm very passionate about because this is a, a hobby I'm very passionate about. Um, and so this is actually my full-time business is, you know, doing these videos and, you know, having the support from patrons. And there are some other things we do, like we sell our, the drawings from every video. I sell those on my website. Um, and they all help me to sort of dedicate the time to do these projects, which is rewarding for me, but it's also, um, it's, I don't know. I feel like there's some, some stuff, some, I feel like there's a lot I can bring to the, the, the YouTube community from sort of the, the maker side of things and with unique ideas or teaching things in a way that, um, I don't know, is maybe more accessible to people just starting out. Um, so, as far as, you know, I mentioned the drawings, um, you know, maybe we might get into doing some kits or something like that. If people are interested, um, we've done a little bit of merch, um, you know, kind of just little bits here and there that, you know, kind of seem organic and natural that people seem interested in. I'm not trying to, you know, make a tool and say like, Hey, everybody buy this tool or anything like that. I kind of want it to be a sustainable and sort of organic thing, you know, so branching off that uh like kind of like teaching or ways of uh showing stuff that might not be out there on youtube already um so a question from chad is do you have any advice for a young guy about to start work in a machine shop listen uh just listen to the, your uh whoever you're sort of mentoring with um because usually those are the guys that have been doing it for you know 10 20 30 years that know all the little tiny things that, you know, you wouldn't pick up unless you, you know, had that experience. Um, so yeah, just be a sponge, absorb as much as you can. Um, and don't be afraid to make mistakes. Um, I, I think that's a little harder to say for someone who's kind of in a production shop because, you know, a mistake could cost you your job, but, um, I, I guess for some, maybe that's more directed for towards hobbyists is, you know, don't be afraid to break something. Um, you know, that's kind of how you learn and, you know, you can watch YouTube videos all day long and, and, you know, see all the mistakes people make or listen to lessons. And until you make the mistake yourself, you're not going to really ingrain that in your, in your, uh, 
sort of repertoire of skills and what's right and what's wrong. So, Parker, do you uh, you have anything else you want to go over? No, um, I'm actually just going to ask uh, YouTube chat, see if they have any questions that they want us to uh, ask. And uh, if not, then we'll wrap up this episode. Give it probably about 30 seconds. Well, well, uh, well, we wait on that. Um, Brandon, uh, what is a, what is the best place for people to learn about you outside of obviously the YouTube channel? Um, th- that is the best place. Um, cause that's where most of my content is. I also post all the videos on my website inheritancemachining.com. Um, that's where also where we have links to the drawing store and the, um, and the merch shop. Um, and then, uh, I have a Patreon that's it's just inheritance machining, um, and then there's an Instagram where I kind of post, you know, a, a kind of a picture with every video that I do. That's a little kind of artistic looking picture, uh, <laughs> and maybe a little blurb about it. But uh, yeah, those are the main the main channels. So, and the and the Instagram is also at sorry, yeah, it's at inheritance machining. Well, Brandon, I want to thank you so much for coming on our podcast and talking about your youtube channel Um, my pleasure it was a lot of fun to talk to someone who basically almost has like the like the drafting background and that kind of stuff because there's not there's not a lot of people that do hand drawing really anymore yeah yeah and (laughs) i think i get made fun of a lot for that but it's it's kind of one of those things it's for me it's for my sanity and you know it's what i enjoy doing it's it's all part of the appeal of it all. So. Yeah, there's actually one quick question, and uh, this is actually a good one. Um, do you have any advice for people designing their own parts that are intended to be machined? And this, I think, kind of goes back to the idea of like drafting. Yeah, if if you can, if you have access to get around machines, whether using them or you know, watching YouTube videos on how things are made. Um, that, that helps a lot because it's obviously you can't drill a square hole with a, you know, a drill bit, those sort of things um, are obvious uh, in most cases, but it's when you get down into the real nitty gritty and you realize, Oh, I don't have the clearance for a cutter to do this or, you know, those sort of things. It's kind of, I would say that's the best approach um, to kind of figuring out if something can be made. Um, and then other than that, I don't know, maybe, that's, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, yeah. Making friends yeah. with a machinist. Yeah, make friends with a machinist yeah. and show them your design. Right. It's probably a good way to to learn. I mean, that's how I learned. So. Yeah, that's that's probably why I have a terrible time giving an answer to this question because I'm very hands on, figure it out as I go kind of uh, kind of learner. So. I guess you want to get good at designing stuff. Make stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's that's very important. I think so. <clears throat> I think those two go in hand in hand anyways, because usually people who want to be mechanical design engineers are usually tinkers to begin with. So um, it's probably not an unfamiliar thing for most most engineers. Well, cool. Um, are you wrapping up, Stephen? You good? I think I'm good. Okay. So thank you so much for coming on, Brandon. My pleasure. Thanks. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.
Thank you. Yes, you are listener for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack.